Thank you, Daniel and Joanna, and for Paul. It's just great to sing God's praises together. If you have a Bible, and I hope you do, I'm going to invite you to go to 1 Timothy with me. 1 Timothy chapter 1. Today marks a new chapter in the life of Calvary Baptist Church. It marks a new chapter in my life, the life of the children that God has blessed Debbie and I with. And again, Deb's at home sick, and she sends her greetings and really would love to be here, but she didn't want to bring that bug and virus into the church with her. But it's good to be here. I'm so thankful for my family that God has blessed me with. Debbie is God's gift to me, and I want to treasure her and thank the Lord for her. And then the three children that God has blessed us with is just... uh, Sometimes you just get overwhelmed with blessing. Now, as we get to know each other and as we begin this new chapter, um, I'm an extrovert. I don't, would never, I would never play poker because I would lose because everything shows on my face. I, uh, whatever I'm feeling comes out. When I'm joyful, I'm joyful. When I'm terrified, it shows. When I'm nervous, it shows. And yet God in his goodness and because he chose the foolishness of preaching, he has chosen to use us and I'm amazed that he lets me do this. I really, really am. But I love my Savior and I know that this church loves Jesus and we want to know more of Jesus. And that's why I want to take us through what we call the pastoral epistle. So we're going to look at 1 Timothy and we're going to go to 2 Timothy and then we're going to go to Titus and we're going to do that together. And um, just a heads up, it's probably going to take the whole year, all right, to do it. Just so you know, um, we're going to really dig into this. We're really going to do this. And basically what I've tried to come, come up with or summarize kind of the theme, the thing that I want to tackle most as a, as a family is the idea that we are the church. And if we are the church, then practically, how do the people of God live life? I've been raised around church. My parents came to Christ two weeks apart when I was five, and I was an only child, so I was the king of the castle, all right? Then mom and dad found Jesus, and Jesus became the king of the castle, which meant I had to go down a few pegs, and I didn't like it. And then they decided that they wanted to reach out into their community, and by the time I was seven, we had 12 foster kids living with us. So I went from me to one of 13 and um, it was a lot of adjustments. But I was raised in Sunday school, raised at youth group. I went to a Christian school, graduated from a Christian school. I've known Christianity. I could win the awards. I went all through Awana. I got all the trophies and medallions that you could get. I mean, if you're talking Bible trivia, I'll take anybody on any day. But I don't know about you, but at a certain point in my life, I got tired of all the theoretical being just that theoretical and not practical or real. And I really rebelled. I pushed back against God and Christianity because to me, at some point, I felt it was nothing more than another religion, another option. But God was so kind to me, so merciful, so gracious. And so what I've titled this morning, because today we're going to celebrate the Lord's table, And I don't want the Lord's table to be a tag on at the end of our service. I want you to be thinking about it the entire time as we lead lead our way to a celebration of the Lord's table. So here's what I want to talk about from 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, which is this. Hope. Hope. 
Now let me make a rather bold statement about St. John's and everybody out there in all those subdivisions and all those places. I think hope is what we all want, but few know where to find it. Hope is something we all want, but few know where to find it. And so this morning, I want to talk about that in verses just 1 and 2, and we'll see how fast I can do it, all right? You're going to get used to me really quick. But I want to talk about the church, the church. What is the church? Who is the church? Is it this building? When you got up this morning, did you say to your kids, come on, let's get up, let's get dressed, let's get, we're going to church. Do you realize how often we do that? We associate church with a destination, with a place. How often do we say, no, we're the church, we're going to go to the building, but we're the church. Now, some might say, well, Steve, you're arguing semantics, but you know what? It played a part in my life, and I'm sure it pays a part in yours, in the way we think about and how we compartmentalize Jesus and the gospel. So what is or who is the church? I would say it's not the building. It's the people in the building. Now, let me ask this even further. Why do we do what we do? Why are we here? Why are we doing this? Why is this service, the service you've just been a part of up to this point, built the way it is? Why do we gather on Sunday? Why do we have the ministries we have? Why do you live the way you do? Why do you make the decisions you do? Why do you live where you live? Why do you act how you act? Why do you watch certain television programs and not others? Why do you say and use certain language and not other types of language? Why do you do what you do? How do we relate to each other and the way we do it? Why do we do the things we do? When was the last time you ever sat down and was actually very self-observant about yourself? Why you are the way you are? Because obviously we have, this, we have the cop-outs, right? The world has the, the devil made me do it. Or this is the way my parents made me. You know, I'm a, I'm a victim of circumstance. I'm a victim of this. I'm a victim of that. Some even say God made me do it. This is the way God made me. You've got to love me because this is the way God made me. It's funny. We love to blame God when he messes up from our perspective. But why do we do what we do? Now, let me go even further. Why or what do you know of Jesus? What do you really know of Jesus? Do you know why you go to church? Why do you come to this church? Why do you belong or why do you feel maybe like you don't belong? One of the things I'm hoping to discover over the next few weeks is what's your story? What's your testimony? Because every one of us has one. And we have as many stories as there are people, and none of them's the same except that God is in the center of it. But we've all got a different story. And I love that, but do you know what your story is? Can I ask now, can I get really personal? What are you struggling with? What have you been struggling with this last week, maybe month or even year, or even this season of your life? Can you and do you feel comfortable in your own skin, with who you are. Maybe some of you here and you're struggling because you'd say, you know what, Pastor Steve, if I could be honest, I'm afraid. I'm really afraid. Maybe some of you are bitter. You've had some, some things happen to you and you don't quite think that's fair. Maybe you're questioning. 
I love the fact that there's a, a large portion of young people here and young adults here. And I know if you've been raised around church at some point, you've struggled with, and maybe right now we're struggling with questioning the gospel, questioning Christianity. Maybe you're doubting it. And I just want you to know from the outset, that's okay. That's okay. That's normal. I want you to know one of the things that I love to say is truth is never afraid of a question. Jesus is not going to fall to pieces because you've got some questions or some doubts. Read the Gospels. His disciples questioned and doubted constantly. Maybe you've done something in recent days or recent months or even maybe in deep into your past and you're ashamed. And you feel like, even though maybe nobody knows about it, you feel like you wear it and you sense that everybody maybe sees it and you walk around and you're never quite comfortable because of that thing that's back there and you just feel the shame of it. Maybe you're confused. Maybe some are angry. All of those emotions are represented here in some way, shape, or form. Do you wonder what all of this means? Have you ever gotten tired, and have you ever wondered, as you're getting up Sunday after Sunday, or you're doing your thing week after week, and wondered, what is all this for? What's the point? What would happen if we just stopped doing it this way? I don't know, you're, you're, you're maybe on your best behavior. I have wondered that many times. Why am I doing this? What's the point of this? Does it all mean anything? Will it make a difference? And yet, when we think about St. John's, would we ask ourselves, and I said this when I candidated, what do you think St. John's thinks of all of this, of Christianity, of all of the churches in the city? What do you think St. John's thinks of us, of Calvary Baptist Church? Um, maybe can we ask, do they even know we exist? Do they know we're here? And then if they don't or they do, why or why don't they know we are here or we're not here? Now, when I was here a few weeks ago, a few months ago, I told you that one of the most profound things in my life that ever hit me was John chapter 13, 35, and John chapter 17, verses 20 to 25. Because there it was unlocked for me by God. I really believe I have read John so many times, but in John 13, 35, Jesus says, a new commandment I leave with you, that you love one another. Now, that's not new. I've read that many times. But then he says, by this, all men will know that you are my disciples by your love for one another. So I've been so busy, I was raised to think in terms of making people know that I'm a Christian by the version of the Bible I carry, the type of music I listen to, what I watch on television, how I dress, my appearance, how often I go to church, what I say, what I, and all of that was supposed to tell the world that I'm a Christian. Yet Jesus says, no, how you love each other tells the whole world that you genuinely are a Christian and you're following me. Now that really was a shock to me and it kind of made me nervous because it's easy to love people that are lovable. It's easy to love people that are kind to you. But man, it's difficult to love people that fail you or that question you or that don't always see eye to eye. I once heard a sermon by a friend of mine who, who, who preached this sermon and the title of his sermon was called Christian Love, The Porcupine Dance. And if anybody's ever asked you how do porcupines mate, carefully all right I don't know about you but sometimes church can feel like the porcupine dance but the reality is when we've been so transformed by the love of Jesus 
When we've been so overwhelmed by Christ, we go through all of that effort. We take all those strains. We go through all the ups and downs of that because God's love just motivates us to love each other with all of our quirks, with all of our weaknesses, with all of our stories, with all of our faults, with all of our inconsistencies, with all of our broken promises. We say, no, we are God's sons and daughters, and we will love each other. And that doesn't mean that we look the other way. It means we learn that confrontation is even an act of love, but it's always done from a heart of love. So we love each other. Then in John 17, when Jesus Christ has the table of the Lord, after he has instituted the table of the Lord, he goes to the Garden of Gethsemane, and the weight of all the sin of all humanity, past, present, and future, is bearing down on Jesus Christ. And in a few hours, he would suffer eternal um, uh, pain and torment in a short amount of time. And he would be separated from God the Father for the first time in their existence in the Trinity. And he cries out in prayer and he says, Father, I don't pray for just the disciples but I pray for all those who will believe on me through them. Folks, I want you to know something. That's Jesus praying for you and me. I love that. I love to go back to that passage whenever I'm discouraged, whenever I'm depressed, whenever I fail. I go back to Matthew, or sorry, John 17, and I remind myself, Jesus Christ prayed for me before he died. But here's the amazing part. When he prays that prayer, he says... Lord, I want my disciples to be one like you and I are one because he says, when they are one, the world will know that you have sent me. And here was my second part of that eureka moment. You see, the way you and I love each other proves to St. John's that we're truly Christians. It means we are who we say we are. That's the biggest litmus test. Then he says the way we're unified together proves that Jesus really is God. Now think about how important that is in St. John's, Newfoundland in 2015. Because if you haven't figured it out yet, we don't live in a Judeo-Christian world or culture anymore. We live in a world that's getting more and more pagan. It's getting worse, not better. It used to be when I grew up, I would grow up and my peer group knew who Moses and Noah were. There was still a sense of morality in these sense. There was still a knowledge of the Bible. Not today. You go up to your average unchurched family and ask them about the Bible. They have no idea. I don't know if it was here, but recently I was watching Jeopardy, um, not because I'm smart, but because I was bored. Um, and there was a, a category that was the Bible. And here were these three, and it was a tournament of champions, and every question on the board, nobody got right. And these were people that were supposed to be experts in trivia. And so in a world that's now getting more pantheistic and more pluralistic and where all of the things that you want to believe in, Jesus says, no, the way you and I are unified actually proves that Jesus is God. So imagine a church where we loved each other so deeply, so strongly, so counterculturally that the world would have to say they must have something or someone because it makes no sense. And imagine we were so unified of purpose, so, so one-dimensional in our direction that it was all about Christ and nothing else, that it actually said to the world, this Jesus must be true. That's the promise of God's word in John 13 and John 17. So now, let me take you a step further. I asked you earlier, so I'm going to ask you again, why do you go to church? Why do you go to church? 
If you were asked this afternoon or tonight or you go to work tomorrow and a friend says, so what did you do yesterday? And you say, well, I went to church. And then they said, why do you go to church? What would you say? What would your answer be? If they asked you, why are you a Christian? Or you said, uh, I go to church because I'm a Christian. Then they said, well, why are you a Christian? What would your answer be? What would your answer be? Now, if they were really getting close to you and they took some chances with you, and every one of you has at least one friend that might take this chance and do this, that their life got turned upside down, maybe their marriage is falling apart, that maybe a, a spouse has got terminal cancer or some sort of chronic illness or terminal illness, some, they're getting laid off, something's going wrong in their life, and they come to you for hope, and they say, I need hope. Can you offer me any hope? What would your answer be? Would you offer them Jesus? Now, I think the truth is, if I asked you to show me a show of hands, if somebody asked for hope, would you tell them, would you give them Jesus? I think most of you would put your hand up. I don't think any of you here would say, no, let's watch Oprah or turn down to Dr. Phil. I think we, we know enough of that. Even though he's got a nice Texas drawl, Dr. Phil is Dr. Phil, all right? Would you explain the gospel to them and its power to change and transform? And I think, again, many of you, even though maybe you felt inadequate, maybe you felt like you couldn't do it, you'd still give it your best shot to share the gospel to them. But let me ask you this, Calvary Baptist, if somebody asked you for hope, would you offer them the church? This church. Now think about that. If someone was feeling hopeless, would you say, come with me to church and I'll let you see what hope looks like? Think about that. I didn't say that they would come and see perfection. In fact, I think it's just the opposite. To me, the gathering of God's people should be where imperfect people gather and worship a perfect Savior. And we put that on display for each other and for our visitors. And so we are going to embark on a journey on this Lord's Table Day where we're going to study God's Word together every week as God gives it to us. And we will, by God's grace and power, not only read His Word and we're going to study His Word, but I hope and pray that we will trust and obey His Word. I don't want to be, I'm going to give you this up front, I don't want to be, I've been too long, Someone who says one thing and does another. Someone who compartmentalizes his life. I've lived too much of my life where there was a Sunday version of Steve and then a Monday to Saturday version of Steve. And I think it undoes the church. It really does. I want to be that who you see here is who you will see whenever you run into me at my weakest or my best. The one thing I've striven for under the grace of God for Brandon and Jordan Abbey is that the version of me they see here is the version of the dude that curls up on the couch to eat mom's dip. That it's the same guy. That's what I want us to be. I don't want to be that guy that just knows all about the Bible but doesn't trust and obey the Bible. I don't want you to be that, and I know Christ certainly doesn't want us to be that. Barnabas Piper, the son of John Piper, and if you can imagine what that must be like, being John Piper's son, one of the best books he's written in recent days is about being a pastor's kid. And a great book, even if you're not a pastor's kid, if you just grew up in the church, a great book to read. He says this, The transformation of a life, internal or external,
can only come in relationship with God. True belief in God is a relationship. In a relationship, we can truly know someone else, not just about them. The knowledge that comes in a relationship is formative. It shapes how we live. Think about your spouse if you're married here, or your best friend, or your mom, or your dad. Your relationship with each of them, your knowledge of them, has influenced your life. You now act different. You're aware of new things. You're offended by new things. You are passionate about things, all because of your relationship with those different people in your life. So... How has your relationship with Jesus changed you or me? How are you and I forever changed by knowing Jesus? And all of this, all of what I've asked you to think about and consider, we're going to find in 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy and Titus. This will be our Bible journey. We're going to discover and ask God to show us and teach us and grant us the knowledge and faith and courage to obey. So we the church, we the people, we the church will start to learn from God what it means or how the people of God live life at church, at home, at work and at play. We, how we live life while we're on vacation. How we live life when no one's watching. I'm, and again, you want proof of a relationship? My father, since I was just this little fella's age, has always told me that true character is what you do when no one's watching. And one of the ways that showed itself was dad would talk about clothes that fell on the floor or if there was a hanger on the floor. And he said, if you'll only pick up the hanger if people are around, that's not character. That's given into peer pressure. The mark of your character is if you pick the hanger up and no one's around. Do you know that to this day, I cannot leave a hanger sitting on the floor? I have to pick it up. Or I feel like my dad is somewhere going, like this ping goes off in his head and says, Steve lacks character. So I have to pick up hangers no matter what. And if you want to test me, leave some hangers on the floor here before you come back next Sunday. They'll be up, all right? This is the, the product of relationship. This is what we're going to do together. By, my, by God's amazing grace, each week we're going to deepen our relationship with God. We're going to deepen our relationship with each other. We're going to be salt and light to this city. And we're going to become a place of hope. As I said at the beginning, where the theological meets the practical. Where we walk in the light as he is in the light and we have fellowship with God and with each other. And so I want us to settle in. I want us to settle our hearts from, to hear from God, to join together as a family and celebrate our Savior, Jesus Christ, even around the table of the Lord. And so I want to give you a little background. And yes, I'm quickly running out of time. All right, so let me talk about First and Second Timothy and Titus. These books are all written between Paul's first imprisonment and his last one. He is at the end of his life. You're going to hear about this in Clarifying the Bible tonight. So if you want to find out if I know what I'm talking about, come tonight and see if I got it wrong, all right? They were written between his first and last imprisonments. Paul has served God now close to 30 years. He is considered the apostle to the Gentiles. He's the great missionary evangelist and church planter. And he would very soon, after he writes 2 Timothy, literally give up his physical life for his eternal life with Christ. In fact, Paul learned long before Jim Elliot ever said it, that he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. 
Paul knew this. And so, as I said, Paul's been called the apostle to the Gentiles. He was the early church's greatest missionary. He was a church planter. And as Brother Steve pointed out last week from Philippians, he cared for churches. He cried over churches. He prayed for churches. He worked to serve the churches of Christ all across Israel and Asia and all of Asia Minor, including his enemies, those that didn't agree with him, those that thought he got it wrong, those that were straying. Paul was vigilant. He was even jealous for the churches of God. And this is a wonderful study if you want to study of his life. And you can find that in Acts chapter 20. Acts chapter 20, he's on his way. He's been arrested and under arrest. He's been imprisoned for two years in Caesarea. Now he's on his way to Rome. And when he gets to Malta there, he calls in the Ephesian elders and he has a parting word with them. These Ephesian elders, some of these elders that Timothy is now being sent to confront. Now these were good guys at the time. And Paul lays out his heart for them, and he tells them how much he loves them, how much he's cared for them. He's talked about how he's always preached the gospel to them. And then he says to them, but I want you to be aware of yourselves and how easy it is to have doctrinal gift, how easy it is to turn Christianity into a religion, how easy it is to act like a Christian and not be one. And so he warns them that if you're not careful, some are going to rise up amongst yourselves, amongst the pastors, who will be like ravening wolves who will come in and lead the church astray. And the proof of that is very early in 1 Timothy. The two guys that are named are elders that have to be turned over to Satan so they'll, not, they'll learn not to blaspheme. Those are elders. They're not, those aren't just two guys in the church. They're elders from Ephesus. This is the tragedy of Ephesus. The Ephesus was really the first century megachurch. They were the church that influenced all the other churches of Asia. You can read about it in Acts that all the churches of Asia were influenced by Ephesus. Ephesus was a booming town, much like St. John's has been in the last few years. Real estate was going up, new businesses are moving in, all kinds of people from all walks of life are coming. It's a bustling, booming town. And you'll notice that there's a problem. It's funny, again, Barnabas Piper says, in the mid to late 1990s, let me ask you what this means. WWJD, tell me what it means. What would Jesus do? Funny, we all knew it. He said, in the mid-90s, WWJD bracelets were all the rage. Posing the question, what would Jesus do? They became so popular that they reached far beyond the realm of just committed Christians. No, they became just a sort of a fashion fad and a moralistic awareness piece. He goes on to say, but it's only in relationship to Christ we could ever answer such a question. In the context of relationship, we gain intuitions. We begin to instinctively know what actions, words, and attitudes will please Jesus. Just as we intuitively learn how to make our friends happy or what they like, so we do with God as we live in relationship with him. Belief becomes less about calculating and more about new instincts. Like every relationship, this is an ongoing process, one in which we grow over time and through intentionality. But the truth is, the more we know of the one we are in relationship with, the more opportunity there is for trust. And this is the word I want you to hang on to. This is a word I will get really obsessed with, trust. In relationship with other people, that trust is often damaged and tested. And you all know what I'm talking about. If you're married, if you have kids, if you've had any kind of friendships, you know that even the people you can love the most have challenged your trust. 
Either they've challenged your trust or you've challenged theirs. There's nobody on the planet I love more than Debbie. I love her so much. I can't even imagine what life would be like without her. But the true honesty and transparency, there's been no one on the planet I've hurt more than my wife. I've failed her more. I've broken more promises. I've been more inconsistent, more selfish. He says, we, they, we, all too often we damage other people's trust in us too. And Barnabas says, because we are selfish sinners. No matter how much we learn of other people's desires, we still act selfishly and hurt them. He says, I hurt my wife and I hurt my kids, not because I don't love them or don't know what they feel, but because I am selfish. But God never breaks our trust. The deeper we go into a relationship with him, the greater our trust will grow. Paradoxically, this happens even as we see how much of him we don't yet understand. But trust in God stems from understanding his character, not his reasons. In relationship with God, we see daily his complete trustworthiness, goodness, power, and presence. And we are never left alone or abandoned by him. He never gives us a reason to doubt him, though sometimes we do out of our own propensity or question our own doing. And so, here's what I want to do for us this morning. Very quickly, as we come to the table of the Lord, I want you to look at 1 Timothy chapter 1, and I want to read two verses. This is the greeting of Paul. Paul writes to Timothy, and he says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus. Now, again, if you write in your Bible, notice, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by command of God our Savior, and of Christ Jesus our hope. If you write in your Bible circle our hope and notice it's an inclusive personal pronoun our hope it's not my hope or your hope it's our hope so Paul says I'm an apostle of Jesus Christ by command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope to Timothy my true child in the faith I love that part and then he says grace mercy and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus, now notice again, our Lord. Not my Lord, not you, our Lord. Again, he's always being inclusive. He's always showing this family dynamic. And so I just want to give us three very quickly. We're going to come to the table of the Lord now. Three reasons or three places you can find hope. Three places that you can find hope. The first one is this. Our hope is found in God's call and God's word. If you're looking for hope, if you know somebody who is looking for hope, again, my grandfather used to say, Stephen, it doesn't have to be complicated to be profound. All right? Our hope is found in our calling from God and in God's word. If someone is hurting, if someone is searching, any of those types of things, you want to point them to God's word. Notice how Paul refers to himself. He says, I'm an apostle of Christ. Paul wants Timothy to know that this letter is different from the others. You've got to know about their lives, and in the coming weeks I'll explain it. Paul and Timothy were good buddies. They, they served God together. And in fact, we find out that Timothy, and you'll hear probably about it tonight, Timothy helped Paul write a number of the epistles that he wrote. But this was something different because this letter was written from Paul to Timothy. 
And so he says, Paul, an apostle of, 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 of Jesus Christ, by command of God our Savior and of G Christ Jesus our hope. He wants Timothy to have a confidence. He wants him to have a, have a, a commissioning sort of an authority to go to the Ephesian church. So Paul evokes the Trinity. He says, God our Savior. You never find that in the New Testament. God our Savior is an Old Testament expression. In fact, if you read the Psalms, that's where you'll find it the most. God our Savior and of Jesus Christ. Paul puts it all together and he wants to remind Timothy of the authority of what he's about to write. And you guys know what I'm talking about. All right. So I have my boys here. If I send them a text or I write them an email or I write them a letter and I say, Brandon or Jordan, Dad here, just checking in, you know, just want to see how you're doing, um, you know, that type of thing. You know, I, I just wanted to, the boys know, all right, Dad's checking in. No one panics. You know, Dad, you know, Brandon doesn't go, oh, my goodness, I better give this a serious read. Dad's checking in. In fact, Jordan was here all the last semester by himself. And the one thing I learned, that unless I didn't evoke a certain amount of authority, Jordan very rarely wrote back to when Dad wrote him. All right? But if I write to Jordan or Brandon and I say something like, this is your father, and I'm writing to you as your father, well, now, likely... A holy terror rises up within them, all right? But at least on some level, they realize, okay, Dad's trying to get our attention. Like, this is not a normal text. This is not a normal email. This is something serious. And it, let's say I'm going away, or let's say I'm sick, or let's say I know I'm not going to be around. And as my boys have gotten older, we've started having that conversation. And that's not to be morbid. I just want to be a planner, all right? I talk about the fact that I'm not going to be around forever, all right? Uh, I eat too much chips dressing and gravy with Steve Daw. I'm not going to be around forever. All right, so I'm prepping the boys all the time about when that day comes and you have to take charge of the family. Tim, Paul is writing to Timothy saying, listen, I'm giving you a charge and I want to get your attention. This is an authoritative charge. And he's saying, listen, my authority comes from God and so does yours. So in other words, he's saying, Timothy, our confidence, our authority, our responsibility is not on buildings, it's not even in elders, it's not in ministries, it's always and only in God's word. So I want Calvary Baptist to be known, not for our building, not for our ministries, not for our music. I want us to be known because we love each other and we're unified around the gospel, but I want us to be known because we stand we trust in, we believe in, we obey, we turn to God's word. Nothing else. That's what we want to trust in. That we are going to study it and we're going to read it and we will memorize it and we will have a relationship with God. Now secondly, notice uh, our hope is found in God's community. So our hope is found in God's word. Secondly, our hope is found in God's community. Notice what Paul says to Timothy. He says, you're my true child in the faith. You're my true child. Notice, that's how we, what he says of Timothy. Now, this wasn't the first time that Paul talked this way about Timothy. You can find him talking about it in Philippians that I'm sure you've heard about, in Corinthians. In fact, Timothy is mentioned about 26 times from Acts to Revelation. And Paul often refers to him as his son in the faith. Now, this word true in the Greek, it means legitimate that's what it means Paul says Timothy listen you're legit you're the real deal 
He's reminding him that he's not a fraud, that he's not a wannabe, that he's there and he's a true child of the faith. He's, he's a, a true son of the faith. They are partners in ministry. Now, many of you know, all right, many of you here, if you've been around church at all, you all know 1 Timothy 4.12. How many of you could quote 1 Timothy 4.12 if you want to show off your Bible powers? 1 Timothy 4, and, right? Don't let anybody despise your youth, right? But be thou an example of love, purity, faith, and good deeds. Many, many. It's one, I think it's the theme verse, isn't it, of Awana? I think 1 Timothy 4.12 is the theme verse of of Awana, or one of the theme verses. It is one of the, everybody knows this. And listen, here's Timothy. He's likely in his mid to upper 30s. He's an experienced guy because he's been with Paul since Paul's second missionary journey. But he's always been a bit of an introvert. He's kind of passive. He doesn't like confrontation. He, he, he's not one to just go in and take charge of a room. And Paul says to him, listen, Timothy, you're my true child of the faith. You're legit. Now, and so you know, in regards to that, Paul would say, you're my true child of the faith. Paul would tell Timothy not to let anyone despise his youth. But in Romans chapter 16, verse 21, Paul says, Timothy is my fellow worker. They put, he puts him as an equal with Timothy. So here's the guy that's the great evangelist to the apostle or to the Gentiles. He's the great church planting missionary. He's all these things. The great apostle Paul who rose people from the dead, who was stoned to death and came back to life. All, I mean, when you think about his resume, Paul sends Timothy to like a mega church where there's people there that are likely better trained, more sophisticated, better with money, have far more credentials. And Paul says, Timothy, you go in, get the bad leadership out, put good leadership in, and show them how to live practically for Jesus. I don't know about you, but in full disclosure, I would probably pee my pants. And I think Paul struggled with it. Or, sorry, Timothy. And yet, here's Paul saying, Timothy, listen. We're on the same team. We're in the same family. You're legitimate you have God's endorsement because you've got God's word as your th- so you hope in the community of faith and so we see that uh, that Timothy is not just a son in the sense of insubordination or in a subordinate they are equals they work together They're, it's inclusive the family of God is Timothy your role in calling at Ephesus while tough and confrontative is all wrapped in family and in love and then finally Paul says our hope is found in Jesus Christ look at verse 2 he says, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, I have to tell you, this is probably one of my favorite verses in the Bible. I really love this because this is the only time Paul has ever used this greeting. All of the other times, Paul will use grace and peace. This is the first time he's ever said grace, mercy, and peace. And the only other time he uses it is Second Timothy. So this is something special that he's giving to Timothy. He finishes this with this threefold grace, mercy, and peace. Now you see what you gotta see what Paul is doing. The Greeks often they had a word for grace that they would refer to, they would say hello to each other, or they would part ways together. The Jews have shalom, peace. They have a greeting or a parting of ways. This mercy was new. Sticking this mercy in here was meant to get Timothy's attention. And you need to see how this works. You see, all of this only works in relationship. Again, Barnabas Piper says, God's connection to and intersection with your life is constant and consuming. God didn't just create you and leave you. 
God is the sustainer of creation. That means that every moment you exist is a moment God is keeping you in existence, willfully and actively. But beyond mere existence, God gave you a soul, the everlasting being that makes you more than just an animal or a mammal. He made it unique and created it to be filled up with him and with his spirit. He made your soul to live forever with him. And if your soul gives itself to God, God makes us reflect him, to honor him and enjoy him. And all that can only be done in relationship with him, to honor him. And not just to, uh, even though you may not entirely realize it here, he goes on to say, we tend to forget him often, but he is there. And for that reason, relationship with God is the defining aspect of our belief in him. So think about the three words, grace. What is grace? Grace is when God our Father, our Savior, because of Jesus Christ, our Redeemer, by his Spirit, our Comforter and Teacher, gives us what we do not deserve. Paul tells Timothy, Timothy, listen, you're going to this church, you're young, There'll be better qualified there, people with more letters after their name, all those types of things, guys that are older, more experienced, they've lived more life, and you're going to have to do some heavy things. You're going to have to confront them and tell them the truth. You're going to have to give them God's word, and you're going to have confrontations. I just want you to realize and remember every day, God will give you what you don't deserve. And then he says mercy. Mercy is when God, the all-powerful, the judge of the living and the dead, takes from us what we do deserve. See, grace is when God gives us what we don't deserve, and mercy is when God takes from us what we do deserve. I deserve hell, but God gives me eternal life with him. That's mercy and grace. And then you'll notice peace. See, when G what Jesus accomplished by his life and his death, his resurrection and his ascension, we have peace with God. That's Romans 5. But Paul is writing to Timothy in light of the task before him. In light of Timothy's youthfulness, his personality, his demeanor, all of those things, he wants Timothy to remember how gracious God is. And he wants Timothy to admit readily that he needs God's grace and he needs God's mercy. And then he wants him to live with that knowledge and then Timothy's life will be peaceful. You will live life in confidence in Christ and not yourself, but you won't be held back by your faults and weaknesses. See, that's the difference. A lot of people understand peace of God, Few people live life with the peace of God. All right? George Whitfield said on January the 27th of 1739, With what love, peace, and joy does God fill this soul of mine? Lord, I'm not worthy, but thy mercies in Christ are infinite. Have you ever felt that? Have you ever gone through a day when you're like, You know what? I'm just shocked at how infinitely gracious and merciful God is. And I've got, I don't even know why I have peace, but I just do. These are what these promises are made for. Many of us try to make heaven on earth. Belinda Carlisle, that old rock singing lady from the 80s, she wrote, right, heaven is a place on earth. And again, I've dated myself that I'm in my 40s. All right, she's wrong. Heaven is not a place on earth. Paul wrapped up this in Romans chapter 8. That neither life, nor death, nor principalities, nor suffering, nor persecution, or anything shall separate us from the love of God. That's why I love the painting. I've st I'm still seeking it. It is of this bird, this, this family of birds 
in a, in a nest, in a tree, and this massive hurricane is raging by, and everything around them is peril. And the mama bird is there, and she's feeding her, 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 her little baby chicks, and nobody is freaking out. They're in the midst of the storm, and they're completely at peace. That's what it means to know the grace and mercy of God. Peace is not tranquility. You know that great hymn of the faith, It Is Well With My Soul? Do you know the story behind it? Right? H.W. Stafford, Spafford had lost all of his children. He had been ruined financially in the great fire of Chicago. He sends his wife and daughters over to London. While there, the boat sinks and all three of his daughters are, are killed. They drown. And he gets a, a, a letter that always says, Saved Alone. And while he's crossing over, and by the way, after that, he loses his son and then another child. And while he's crossing over on the boat, the captain tells him, this is where the boat sank. And he goes to his bedroom and he writes, when peace like a river attendeth my way. It wasn't that you have a tranquil life. It's because you understand that the grace and mercy of God is there for the asking, even when life seems upside down. I don't want us to be a church that acts like we've got it all together. I want us to be a church that can admit when we don't, but we know the one who does. And we can find hope. Hope in God's word, hope in our community, hope in the faith, grace, mercy, and, G and, um, and peace of Jesus Christ. And so, as we come to the table of the Lord, can you make the connections? How do you leave from here and let's go into this table and know what we're doing? Do you know where your hope is found today? Now, really, do you as a church know where to look for, for hope, for peace, for identity, for belonging? You want to know where your idols are? Do you want to know what you really worship? Find out who or what, if they were taken from you, would make your life fall apart and make you question Jesus. Then you know what means more to you than Jesus. Don't you remember the author who said, you can have all this world, just give me Jesus? Is that true? Is that true? Do you have that kind of relationship, that kind of trust? Only Jesus will give you a hope that won't let you down, that will never leave you, and only gets better. He gives us that hope in the form of grace, mercy, and peace. And so I ask, I don't want to take anything for granted. I don't know, is everybody here, do you know that you have that kind of relationship with Jesus? Do you trust him? Trusting Jesus, getting saved, being converted, and all these Christianized words that we have, you know what that basically means? Here's what it means to be a Christian. It means you trust what Jesus says about you. It means you trust what he says your needs are. You trust what he says is best for you. You trust him. It's a relationship. Even sometimes when it doesn't make sense. I know the Forrest uh, family are in karate and our boy's wearing that badge of honor. Is it Isaac or James? Ben. I got to say, look, I'm hitting zero. You're Isaac, right? There you go. Ben. Man, you got to show Ben. Ben, can I use you as an example? Can you stand up and just look at everybody? Uh, <laughs> all right, I won't do that. But it, listen, he, he got socked, right? Just nailed. And he wears, man, I'm telling you, he, he, like he wears it proudly. And he pulls it off well. And, and I love that. I, I, I want to be around him because he just, he, he's doing this. I think it's so cool. And this is what, what it means when we're in a relationship. We trust because you know what he had to learn? That happened doing karate, right? Now, it wasn't supposed to happen, but it did happen. But he has a sensei, guy who trains you and all that, and he's got to trust him. Even sometimes when it doesn't make sense. Even sometimes when it means he gets hurt. 
If he loses his trust, the whole relationship's broken. It's amazing to me that in sports and in all these things of life, we understand trust. I, I remember when I played soccer and played with my college team, our, we, we nicknamed our coach Storm and Norman. And uh, he would make us do some of the most crazy things. We thought he was absolutely out of his mind, but we did everything he said. Why? Because he was the coach. And we trusted him, even when it didn't make sense. Because we honestly believed that what he said we would do, if we did it and we practiced it enough, it would make us winners. He could have been wrong. Jesus never will be. No matter what he calls you to, no matter what he asks you to give up or to take on, no matter what he asks you to give up or give away or to keep, no matter what, his word is always right, his hope is always pure, and he will always be with you, and you can trust him. And I want you to realize that. I want you to realize that if the gospel put Paul and Timothy and Titus in a family relationship, one that involved love and accountability, isn't that true of you and I? We're a family. We're not just a group of people that are here. We're family, called of God, saved by him. And then if God is God and Christ is Christ by his Holy Spirit, he gives us grace and mercy and peace. And he will do that for every one of us. You see, many of you, no, really all of us, we walked in here today with issues, challenges, problems. And those challenges and issues and problems will compete for the peace of our life. It'll be peace or anxiety. It'll be peace or anger, peace or doubt, peace or lack of love, peace or suspicion. And the only way to peace in life is to hope in Jesus. And so as we come to the table of the Lord, it's where we remember what God has done, what God is doing, and what God will always do because of Jesus Christ by his spirit. And we do this as a church, as a family, as sons and daughters of God. And so I'm going to pray, and then we're going to break bread together as a family. And I pray that this time of communion, don't treat this.